Hello and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Justin Richardson. So Justin is the Head of Sport Rehabilitation at Athletes Authority in Sydney, Australia. He's a physiotherapist but is also qualified as a strength and conditioning coach through the ASCA. He has a special interest in ACL rehabilitation which he's presented on both domestically and internationally which means he's a perfect person today to discuss ACL rehabilitation and how to avoid any pitfalls which you might go through. So without further ado, it's time to welcome Justin onto the show. So Justin, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me, Matty. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an early morning here in, uh, here in sunny Sydney, but it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm uh, very, very thankful for your uh, early start, mate. So I really appreciate that. It's a, it's a late one here, so it's a, it's a shared... A shared responsibility, unfortunately, but I do very much appreciate the the earliness of the call. So, a massive thanks for putting the effort in today. Uh, can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Yeah, no dramas. So, um, I'm a I'm a physio by trade. Completed my undergraduate uh, studies with a bachelor of physiotherapy at the University of Canberra. Um, also have a background as a strength and conditioning coach. I'm a, a professionally accredited um, ASCA level two strength and conditioning coach which the ASCA is the uh, so the SNC body um, here in Australia is probably the equivalent to the it's to the UK SCA or the NSCA um, in the states um, currently I work as the head of sports rehabilitation at Athletes Authority uh, which is a private uh, sporting performance institute uh, here in Sydney Australia and previously I've held uh, some academy positions at um, a couple of uh, NRL or rugby league football clubs um, here here in Sydney um, at the Cronulla Sharks and at the South Sydney Rabbitohs, as well as working private practice in, in the past. But that's a little bit of a, a short rundown um, about sort of where I came from, what my background was, and how that sort of influenced uh, my practice, um, as well as my my current roles and duties uh, at the moment, Matty. Cool. So in terms of um, responsibilities, you're clearly responsible for lots of rehab stuff going on there. And we were fortunate as well to talk to Lachlan, who's uh, one of the uh, either co-owners or co-directors of, uh, of Athletes Authority. Um, so if anyone's interested in that one, be sure to give that podcast a listen too. But before we start plugging that one too much, I want to get onto the topic at hand, and that's ACLs, right? So you've uh, done increasing amounts of ACL work recently, including a mentorship. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. It was um, it was quite a quite an interesting journey, quite a long journey um, over the last three months. Running a, an ACL mentorship program through Athletes Authority, something that we we wanted to build out um, during the first uh, COVID lockdown was our own in-house um, ACL rehabilitation framework. Um, it took us a long time. It took us the entire lockdown um, to build out the what was iteration one of it. And then since we've implemented it, uh, we've gone from having only one, about one ACL athlete in our facility to of our 102, I believe it is, our current rehab athletes, about 70 of them um, are going through ACL rehabilitation, um, as well as probably as having over 100 of them um, graduating the rehab program. So we've had quite high volumes go through that. So it's been something that I feel quite blessed that I've had that exposure to um, over the last few years. Um, so it's it's definitely, it's an interesting area. It's definitely one that I think globally we don't have all the answers to. If we did have all the answers to it, people uh, wouldn't still be injuring their ACLs. Um, and I think we, we encounter quite different, uh, quite different challenges 
in the professional athlete compared to the amateur athlete, but it's something that I'm very interested in. And in terms of like the meat and potatoes for that, right? Like what, what is an ACL and what does it do? Because we, we can chat about why, how, how many people have it and the fact that it's, it's not quite a, a solvable issue, but let's start with the basics. Like what is it? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. Um, and it's something that we can t- tend to gloss over is so put simply, the ACL is one of the primary, uh, passive stabilizers uh, of the tibiofemoral joint. So you've got two joints in your knee. You've got your tibiofemoral joint and your patellofemoral joint. Um, it's one of uh, a few uh, key primary stabilizers. And then we would probably have this second tier of um, secondary stabilizers that work around it. Um, and it really primarily restricts the, tibio, the tibiofemoral joint from um, from translation, so translation of the tibia forward on the femur as well as rotation loads. Now, the importance of this, and we're not going to obviously dive into uh, mass details here, um, but the knee, the tibiofemoral joint itself is quite a very um, fragile ecosystem in the sense that we've got the, uh, the chondral surfaces, the articular cartilage, um, the subchondral bone, we have our menisci tissue, um, and then the actual joint capsule itself, which where uh, for all of us that have seen ACL injuries as well as probably quite heavy uh, pivot shift knee injuries, when that gets really unhappy, that gets full of effusion um, or what we call synovitis. So the ACL has a really important job at protecting the rest of the knee joint, and that's probably what I think we gloss over in that the actual injury to the ACL itself um, is, whilst it is a devastating injury and, and it leaves athletes with having a large time off, um, it's what we're more concerned about is the protection of the uh, chondral surfaces, the subchondral bone and the integrity of the joint health itself rather than the actual ligament. Because I think what is a, a misconception is that a human being can function quite well without an ACL. It is just where the gray area comes in as well. What is that human aiming to achieve in life? And I know we're, we're going to touch on a particular uh, human being later in this chat but that's a little bit of a, a broad-based uh, summary about what the ACL is and what it does and in terms of then the frequency right because you mentioned obviously a huge percentage of the athletes you're seeing uh, are getting this injury so like how how often does it occur and how much time does it cost and maybe maybe time is not the only thing that it costs right it's going to cost you loads of uh, potentially money uh yeah your contract might not get renewed um maybe you don't even ever come back to the same level so what's the cost of these injuries yeah so if we look at frequency to start with i think that's the question that um at least in the semi-professional and amateur space that i don't think we have that much of an answer to in regards to where I'm, I can't speak for what happens over in Europe, but in Australia, we're going through a number of different changes culturally in terms of participation rates with sport, particularly with women's sport, which is absolutely outstanding to see. Um, we're also seeing um, both across both genders um, from a younger age, um, kids participating in organised sport are far earlier and far more organised sports. And then we're also seeing... Uh, very rapid changes in surfaces in regards to the types of grass athletes are playing on, um, the shifting to more artificial surfaces. So there's a lot of different moving parts and it's all just adding to this bucket of increased frequency of ACL injuries. In regards to the time cost and the potential uh, financial costs, 
well, for the semi-professional athlete, there's obviously no financial cost, but what they have is the uh, time cost and the potential, if we're talking about, say, an academy player that um, may be trying to push for a contract, they could be losing their whole career um, depending on the severity of the injury, how the rehabilitation is approached, and um, and the dynamics around the length of time that they're out for and, and the environment that they're returning to. Generally, what we're looking at in that, uh, amateur to semi-professional space is you're looking at about a minimum if we're talking about a reconstruction a minimum of nine months uh, on the sideline before return to play in the adolescent athletes so your less than 18 year old athletes usually more around 12 months um, in the professional athlete they're pushing the boundaries to be as as probably as quick as about six months and then if you're talking about your revision procedures uh, that's where we can be looking at periods of time anywhere between 12 to 18 months uh, on the sideline. Um, but I think it's important to note that how you approach the rehabilitation for a 21-year-old at the start of the career, their career may look very different to how you approach the rehabilitation for a 31-year-old in the twilight of their career that are either maybe chasing a contract or playing their final season. And in terms of that that quality that they're going to deliver, right, is is there a serious impact to the quality of their performance based on uh, whether they've had this injury or not? I mean, does does it particularly detract from performance or can you get back to the same level again? Uh, the thing that I, and the mantra I like to live by with these injuries and the message that I portray to athletes when they suffer this, because when an athlete suffers this injury, right, it's like their whole world has melted down. It's, it's, it's a really, really tough pill to swallow. Um, but I like to let them know and I, I've taken this mantra from Andy King is that this is the longest preseason that you're ever going to get and for some athletes particularly um, for, particularly for the ones that have gone through whether it be their junior career or their career to date and they've constantly suffered niggles on niggles I, I like to use it as an opportunity for them for an opportunity for them to hit the reset button because we're we're not only reconditioning a knee, right? We're restoring athletic movement and we're, we're, we're hopefully going to return an athlete better than they were beforehand, uh, physically and mentally. Now, there's going to be components where depending on the type of surgery that's performed, you may have some donor site morbidity that um, will need to be accounted for. Um, and as long as we educate our athletes that that's okay, um, and then if we're doing an excellent job over this six, nine, 12 plus month period, um, and that we and that we maintain it afterwards, um, that shouldn't be uh, an issue for them long term. Um, but I, I personally like to believe that I can achieve better performance with majority of my athletes that that suffer this injury. There's going to be for the ones that have suffered three, four ACL injuries. The more the more trauma you put on a knee, the less it is going to tolerate load. So we need to keep that in mind as well. And I think that also impacts how we approach the aggressiveness of our rehabilitation from the get-go. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's nice that the, uh, the outlook isn't all just doom and gloom as well, right? That it could be an opportunity to perform better potentially and work on stuff that you've not looked at before. Um, just to be clear, the, the donor site morbidity, that means, for example, if they're going to take uh, some some tissue from another site, that means that that site is then affected effectively, right? Uh, yeah, correct. So the most common sort of two that we see here in Australia would be either a hamstring tendon graft, so your semitendinosus or semitendinosus gracilis graft, um, or your 
patella tendon, so your bone patella tendon bone graft. Um, they're two quite different grafts. A hamstring graft is more of a, what we call a soft tissue uh, graft, whereas a, bone, a patella tendon is more of a bone to bone because they use two, two bony plugs. Um, they're going to provide very different, like if you think about a fork in the road where athlete with an, AC, uh, an ACL injury is about to get a reconstruction, they're going to provide very different challenges um, for the athlete um, as you're going through their journey. The hamstring uh, graft is going to suffer uh, quite a lot of deficiencies in inner range knee flexion, uh, likely going to be quite sensitive around the pes anserinus, which is where the semitendinosus um, it, it inserts into. Um, and you'll notice quite um, some well, what I sort of call weird things going on with their gait patterns in the sense that they tend to externally rotate their foot because of that lack of that um, secondary internal rotator in the, in the semitendinosus, whereas your bone patella tendon bone grafts, and this is a generalization, by the way, um, typically suffer more anterior knee pain. Um, they struggle uh, regaining their eccentric quadriceps strength and control, um, as well as the, their ability to transition their tolerance back towards um, positive shin angles. Um, so it, we, how we then, if we know that they're going to be the challenges, then we, we can really guide our sort of our rehab programs uh, quite specific uh, based on the different type of graft that the, that the athlete has, which is it's almost like a rehab version of sports-specific training, right? It's like, well, this athlete has this injury and these considerations. I'm going to base my rehab program based on that rather than lumping them all together going, well, they've had an ACL reconstruction and this is how I rehab an ACL. And that, that brings us on really nicely to the next question, right? So how do you rehab an ACL? No, um, so what, what, what are the phases you're going to go through? Because obviously um, at some point you may have that, that graph that you're talking about. What are the key phases that you need to hit to make sure that you're getting back to performance? Yeah, perfect. And this is, um, I'll, I'll synthesize this question down um, and I'll use sort of our terms. So we have our, we have very distinct phases of rehab. So um, we'll start with what we call our protection phase. So in your protection phase, um, athlete is obviously very uh, acute posts. Uh, we're, we're talking on reconstruction here. We're, I'm going to separate the sort of conservative management. Um, they're very acute post surgery. Um, so the large proportion of that is really respecting the healing process. Um, we don't really want to do any harm to that. We're not trying to. We're not uh, trying to overload the the tibiofemoral joint or the patellofemoral joint that could exacerbate. Uh, their, their knee pain and swelling. We're really trying to regain range of motion, uh, restore their quadriceps activation, um, some gentle donor site conditioning and um, reduce reduce effusion. Um, once we get past that protection phase, the athletes really started to settle down from a healing process and that could take anywhere from sort of six to eight slash 10 weeks, depending on, um, I think what we probably need to as clinicians look at a little bit more is the severity of the injury. So by that, I mean the usually when the ACL injures, it's what it happens in a what we call a pivot shift mechanism of injury, which um, essentially the, the the two bones, the tibia and the femur, will will hit each other. So the severity of the bone bruising um, in the subchondral bone uh, can really impact how much you can you can push the athlete, as well as any sort of damage to the meniscal tissue or the articular cartilage. Um, but once we're past the, that protection phase. Then we enter what we call our load introduction phase, which for us is really about the restoration of um, key movement patterns in both a, a lifting sense, so your, your squat, hinge, lunge, push, pull, 
um, as well as uh, from a gait perspective. So we break it down. For us, we break it down into um, an acceleration position, um, a max velocity position, and then sort of a frontal plane type position. Um, but by and large, for the majority of this uh, load intro phase, we're, we're not having a ground reaction force component to it because we're still respecting an ongoing healing process. Um, so once we've developed some initial capacity um, and the athlete's starting to restore their muscle bulk and they look like that their strength is uh, is returning, then we enter our strength accumulation phase, which is when they would enter our rehab running process. Um, and during that rehab running process, that's when we're aiming to build uh, linear volume, um, starting to, to re recondition and develop the mechanics of change of direction through deceleration, um, sort of trunk and hip positioning, and then actually going breaking it down into um, how an athlete changes direction, um, as well as in the gym. That's when we're really focusing on um, fully restoring their muscle hypertrophy, um, developing maximal torque. Um, and then finally shifting along that force velocity curve to developing rate of force development. Um, and that's where we can really get um, start to get creative with our plyometric continuum. Um, then for us, that's when we get into our, our training integration phase, which is the, the journey of slowly integrating the athlete back into team training. Um, now that process looks like for, for us um, at the start of it, it's just them doing their physical conditioning skills with um, their physical conditioning drills with the team uh, with some very more static type skill work. Uh, then from there, getting into more closed uh, skills, open skills, then small-sided games, and then return to full full training. Um, and then finally, the the all-important the all bit, which is returning to play uh, in a more modified manner and then gradually weaning them back to, to full return to play and what we like to believe is return to performance. That's uh, super comprehensive, but I can imagine there's uh, there's months and months and months worth of uh, stuff we can go through there. So I'm not going to ask you too many in-depth questions off the back of that, but what I would like to touch on is whether there are any misconceptions about how to, to go about this process, right? So I can imagine there's a lot of people who will be like, right, you really can't get any uh, load on those tissues for the first number of months, whatever it might be. Are there misconceptions which you think uh, are myths which need to be busted? Yeah, look, and we go back and forward with these things. I think we obviously the biggest one is that uh, misconception about sort of open chain uh, loading um, in the sense of that it places strain on the ACL and it puts the graft at risk. Now, we know from quite a number of studies that the, the ACL is really only loaded in the sort of the last um, uh, sort of degrees of, of knee extension, so we can get more modified ranges of motion. I, I think there is merit to the argument that the bony tunnel sites are healing as well. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't go nuts with it. Um, but that we can implement some open chain loading, which is really our only way to fully isolate the, um, the quads. I think probably the other misconception is that it does have to be, um, a, a, like a bed based program, um, for the first six plus weeks. Like, whereas, for us, we're always thinking about well, what can the athlete do and, and what's our window of opportunity to develop movement patterns. Um, so we like to get them into the gym really early. But then probably just like going on from that, and it's not really a misconception, but I would probably say that the biggest learning lesson that I have ha um, taken from the past few years of taking athletes through this process is that you you can't win the battle in the first six weeks, but you can certainly lose it in the first six weeks. So I think just respecting the healing process and not pushing them too hard. Um, the knee is always right in regards to pain and swelling. Um, and we really need to respect that in the sense that we don't need to go to town 
with um, early plyos uh, too soon. Um, we don't need to go to town with uh, full range of motion loading too soon. Um, we've got plenty of time and success takes a long time. I think that's some, some really good advice as well. And I can imagine yeah, losing the battle, re-injuring within the first uh, few weeks is, is going to be a big, big deal. So that's some excellent advice. Um, when it comes to, uh, obviously, uh, women in sport, then ACL injuries seem to occur more often. And you mentioned earlier that there was a, a large increase, in Australia at least, uh, in women in sport, which is fantastic. Um, is, is it true that women suffer more ACL injuries? And if so, why is that the case? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting space. And I will just clarify with the losing the battle comment, not necessarily just about re-injury, but more about uh, creating like a, a sort of a chronic effusion or pain cycle um, rather than just purely re-injury. So I'll just clarify that one for the listeners. But um, in regards to the, uh, the female athlete question, statistically, uh, in regards to primary ACL injuries, yes, they tend to suffer um, a higher rate of primary ACL injuries in comparison to, to males. Now, biomechanically, they are um, a, a little bit more at risk when we're talking about things like Q angles, when we're talking about things like hypermobility in comparison to their male counterparts. Um, and then probably the space that is a little bit less studied is um, I'll use a sport uh, in Australia, like uh, Australian rules football. Um, a lot of uh, females are picking this sport up in their uh, in their teens, in their early 20s. So they haven't really had the opportunity to play and develop the sport-specific movement patterns from a really young age when their bodies are really sort of floppy and able to mould and, and adapt um, like, like the boys have been historically. Now that's starting to change, which is awesome. Um, so potentially that exposure uh, to different movements in a later period in life is is increasing the risk now i don't have a research study to back that up but that's just a, um sort of one of my own uh theories in that space if we're looking at uh re-injuries it actually flips and males suffer more re-injuries than females now we can hypothesize many different reasons in regards to that one is like well um are the return to sport rates as high in females as they are in males um it's, it's sort of inconclusive in that space but it Tip, it is sort of trending that males probably return to uh, their level of sport um, a bit more than females do, and that's, whether that's related to whether they should or shouldn't is a different question. Um, the other one is obviously males. Um, <laughs> we, we like to be uh, very – we like to think that no, nothing bad's ever going to happen to us. Um, we're not very uh, – <laughs> yeah, the old, it won't happen to me. Um, so males tend to be more uh, risk-oriented uh, than females. Um, and they tend to, the other thing which I've probably more gathered from actual sport coaching rather than my work as a clinician is that um, if you give, you could give males all of the information and education and they'll go stuff for you, I'll do it anyway. <laughs> Whereas females, <laughs> females are more likely to actually listen um, to you. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. So men, men are belligerent idiots who are just going to mess themselves up anyway and women actually listen to what you have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's sum, summing it up. Sorry, boys. Um, but, but yeah, look, there's many things at play there, but probably statistically, it we're, what we're looking at is females higher risk of primary injuries and males higher risk of secondary injuries. Cool. And the the one question that I wanted to ask before we have to wrap up because I don't want to steal too much of your morning and uh, yeah get told off by uh, Big Lachlan Wilmot. Um, <laughs> what we we've recently seen uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic come out and be like, I played for months with uh, without an ACL, right? Um, 
like is is that possible and if it is is it recommended like how how do you go about even thinking about doing that i mean like i'm not going to refute his claim so it sounds like it's it actually happened but in regards to would i recommend it i mean i think we just have to look at the the video footage of him getting his knee drained um and him saying that he had that once per week for six months to for me to say no um i wouldn't recommend it um at least in the the space that that he had. Now, look, he he made a decision that he wanted to do that um, for the goals of short term success. Um, he was very clear about that, and I think if this is where, like, we as the clinician arm the patient with all the education. Now, if they want to go and do that, then that's their decision. Um, and if in a long term view if they look back on that and they're happy with that decision like at the end of the day right it's not like we're sending people into a pool filled with great white sharks right they're not going to die <laughs> like they're, they're making these decisions uh based on what they want and it's about well what do you want is it do you want the success now or are we thinking about a long-term view about your sort of your knee health now what is his knee going to look like in 30 40 years time um look probably not great was it always was it going to look like that anyway? And based on his history of injuries and and many years in sport, potentially. Um, but for my recommendations with people, it would be if you're going to play uh, without an ACL, you've obviously got to have very good functional stability. I still like to see quite a stiff uh, knee um, on sort of a more passive assessment. Um, but then it's more about who. What is the person in front of me again? Are they that athlete? in the twilight of their career that's maybe playing for a, a final contract or they're in their final season and they're, they're, if they got a reconstruction, they definitely miss um, any kind of final series or whether they're, they're going to miss the, the most important games or are they the younger athlete that has 10 years left in their career? Because I'm probably giving them very different advice, um, but we're just going to arm people with all of the tools uh, I know that sounds like a, a bit of a cop-out answer, um, but we could, we've just got to educate people and let them make their own decisions. In terms of like my belief on can people function in sort of multi-directional, so 360-degree pivoting sports without an ACL for a long period of time, um, my answer would be no. To, in the same space that if somebody had um, sh shoulder instability following a glenohumeral joint dislocation, um, with lots of damage to the glenohumeral joint, could they survive long-term um, in contact-based slash high-risk sports? My answer would also be no. Um, so that's my short take on that. Yeah, I think that's uh, some excellent advice, and it makes a lot of sense that the education needs to come first, but also that unless you're going to throw a Hail Mary and, and hope for the best uh, for one last uh, hurrah, then you probably want to get that looked at a little bit more seriously than uh, than just uh, going for it and see what happens. Um, and uh, he also falls under the man category as well, so uh, maybe he just didn't listen. Who knows? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but um, Justin, massive thanks for your time today. I really appreciate all of your, uh, your time and effort. So a uh, huge thank you from me. And uh, yeah, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks for having me on, Matty. It's been great. Cheers, buddy. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Justin for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of our Coach Academy. Now, the Coach Academy is a series of lectures broken down into bite-sized chunks. 
So if you've enjoyed today's podcast and you want to find out more about ACL rehabilitation or injury in general, get into the Coach Academy completely for free using the link in the show notes in just a few seconds time. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, it'd be fantastic if you could recommend us to a coach, an athlete, a friend or a colleague. That means that we can keep bringing you the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport and I'll speak to you next week.